as you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to Esther. Chapter 5 is where we are in our ongoing series through this wonderful short story in God's Word. Lord willing, after tonight, we'll have only four more studies to round out this wonderful book. And so we're going to look at all 14 verses that are there in chapter 5 together tonight. Let me read them for us and then pray briefly for God's blessing and then we'll begin together. So hear now as God speaks to you once again through His perfect word. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, And went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the queen. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made. In the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we thank you for your mysterious and wonderful way in which you guide us and lead us. Even when there are times in which we do not know the way to go, you have given us clear direction through your words. So may it be a lamp unto us and a light unto our feet as we want to travel the pathway unto godliness this day. We might walk on the narrow road that leads us to Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might do this now as you speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
I heard her story once of an occasion years ago in England. It was one of those nights that so often strikes across the Atlantic where the weather was driving everyone indoors. A sudden storm had rose, thunder was striking, lightning was coming, the rain was falling, and in a local pub, people began to crowd in quite quickly to escape all of the wet weather on the outside, and soon the place was filled to this standing room capacity. And as was wont to happen in such occasions, the drinks began to flow, and at one point, a server was walking through the crowd, holding a tray overhead full of drinks to give to the various people there in the pub, and someone accidentally bumped into her, and the drinks scattered about falling upon this wall that had just received a new coat of paint and the owner of the pub was relatively aghast that all of the hard work now was completely torn astray and asunder by all of this drink upon the wall. And then it was said that this man kind of stepped forward from the crowd in the pub and he happened to have in his hand a a box full of paintbrushes and other artist's tools. And he said, do you want me to do something about the mess? And interested enough, the pub owner said, yeah, sure, go at it. And so he began to work. He took out his brushes. He took out his other tools. And soon enough, he had the entire pub spellbound at what he was weaving before their very eyes. For over an hour, he held them captive as he had taken what was this incredibly messy wall and slowly but surely turned it into this masterpiece of an artist's work. And when he was about done, he pulled out a small piece of charcoal, and then he signed his name at the bottom left-hand corner of that wall, promptly locked up all of his tools, and then he walked right back outside into the weather and all of the storm. And someone peered in quite quickly after he left and noticed the name there scribbled into the bottom left-hand corner, and it was the name of one of the leading artists of the day in England. And how true it is, even in the Christian life, isn't it, that we often, if we can stand back and watch, perhaps from a further distance, we realize that what God is often doing in the midst of a messy reality that is the Christian life, he's weaving a tapestry and a portrait together, he's painting a picture that's altogether glorious, if we would have but eyes to see what he is doing. And the story of Esther in its entirety is exactly that weaving all of these difficult circumstances and scenarios, tragic decisions, somewhat sketchy decisions, along the way to weave a portrait where he's going to fulfill the promises that he has made to his people, their provision and and their protection. And we find ourselves in the middle of what God is weaving together tonight in this story here in chapter 5. We left off last week, if you were with us, with what we called Esther's defining moment. You might realize, from a, remember from a few weeks back, uh, we, were, we met this man named Haman. And he hated Mordecai specifically and the Jewish people generally. And such was his hatred and animosity against God's people. He had essentially led the king to write down into law, a law that couldn't be revoked, a particular date for the Jews' annihilation. We said it was his version of the final solution for the Jewish people. And so Mordecai heard about what had been decided. If you glance back to the beginning of chapter 4, he had learned all that had been done. He went into this season of lament and fasting, and he went to his younger cousin, who was also his adopted daughter, Queen Esther, and said, you you need to do something about this. 
You might remember a relatively famous question that he poses to her. Who knows, at the end of verse 14 in chapter 4, whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So, of course, Esther, in that moment, she's understandably full of fear. She knows that to go before the king, unbidden, is to tempt execution, unless he reached out his scepter to her. But she says, if I perish, I perish. And that's where we left off last week. Esther preparing herself to go into the king's presence, to intercede and to, in many ways, serve as a mediator for God's people. And what I want you to see along the way today are three particular things in our 14 verses. First, I want you to notice Esther's subtlety in verses 1 through 8, and then Haman's spite, verses 9 through 14, and as we conclude by thinking in a few ways about what this means for our life under God's sovereignty at the end. So Esther's subtlety. We pick up the story as much like a good novel tends to do, leaves you at the end of a chapter on a cliffhanger. And that's exactly what chapter 4 is doing. So chapter 5 opens, notice verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood. And notice the phrases that get piled up here in the rest of verse 1. It's as though the narrator is very much slowing down the narrative that we might know precisely and particularly what is about to happen more especially where it's going to happen in the palace. She put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. It's as though if you laid out a floor plan of the palace in front of you, you're to know precisely the king is seated here and Esther is standing here and she's about ready to walk into his presence which no doubt would have been an awesome and tremendous reality. We know from the last chapter that the king hasn't called for her in 30 days. She, of course, has no idea what she's going to receive if she walks into his presence when he hasn't asked her to come into his presence. Ancient reliefs from that time period tell us it was quite common when the king was seated there in his throne that behind him would be a member of the royal guard, essentially, And there, kind of laid across his chest, would be this large, sharp axe, ready to wield its power against anyone who came into the king's presence, unannounced and unasked. In other words, if he doesn't extend that scepter, that axe is going to be extended instead upon someone's head. And Esther, we know from chapter 4, wonders if that's going to be her head placed on the chopping block. But nevertheless, with some degree of faith, she's going into the king's presence. She's even announcing by virtue of her clothing with these royal robes, underscoring her identity as queen. She's not coming in as just an ordinary citizen or common peasant. She is the queen of the empire. Perhaps the king then will be predisposed to answer her request. As some of you may have had a time in your life, perhaps even you're in such a moment now where the Lord has given you some degree of a calling. It's a calling to which He has placed faith into your heart that the Lord has called me to do this. But you're walking into a future, you're walking into the next few weeks, perhaps even the next few months and years, not knowing precisely what you're going to face, but you trust that this is what you should be doing. Sometimes, isn't it true, that happens with a job. Lord, I I don't know if 
exactly what's going to happen if I take this new job, but I trust that you want us to be there. Perhaps it's a move to a different place. Lord, I don't know what's going to come on the other side of that move, but we trust that you're calling me to do that. Students, sometimes it can happen also in school, can't it? When someone wants you to go against your conscience, you walk forward in faith saying, I'm not sure what's going to be on the other side by way of rejection or opposition, but I'm going to walk forward instead. No doubt Esther, with some degree of a beating heart, walks forward, not knowing what will greet her. You'll see in verse 2, the text has us understand it seems like that as soon as she came into the king's view, he extended his sight to her in favor. He holds out the golden scepter And she approaches, touches it, and he says, look at verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. That phrase of even to the half of my kingdom, it was ancient Near Eastern way of saying, ask for whatever you want, I'll give you whatever you want. And so Esther essentially has a blank check at this moment from the most powerful man in the world. It seems like, Certainly, if it was many of us, this is the perfect time to cash in our heart's deepest desire. King, you need to save my people. Because you've written into law this edict for their annihilation and destruction. Surely you can help. But you notice, Esther doesn't do that at all. Her plan is much more subtle. Look at verse 4. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared For the king. Clearly she had put some thought into this beforehand. This isn't a spontaneous spur of the moment decision to only ask that he attend a banquet in her presence. This was her subtle plan all along. And the king says, get Haman. Let's go have a feast in the queen's place. After the feast is over, you see that the king comes now in verse 6 and essentially says, tell me what you want what you really, really want. What is your wish? It shall be granted to you even to the half of my kingdom. And so again, it seems like now's the perfect time to fix the problem of the final solution waged against the Jewish people in the book of Esther. But again, Esther doesn't make that request. And in a subtle way, what you're noticing at this point in the story is the power structures begin to shift. This is now not the story of the queen coming into the king's place to ask for his bidding, but now it's the king coming into the queen's place to ask for her bidding. And it begins, look at verse 7, with seemingly Esther giving her answer, my wish and my request is. If you were the king listening in that moment and heard those phrases, you would think, well now finally she's going to tell me what has so occupied her mind and her heart that she would come unannounced into my presence. But look at what she says, verse 8. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And you might think after reading these verses, why make another request for another feast? Another banquet that Esther is going to prepare. But if you glance down again at verse 8, you see that she's subtly giving herself confidence that the king will answer what will be a mighty request. 
Because he's essentially saying in verse 8, if you show up tomorrow, I know that you are going to answer what I will request of you. So if the king arrives tomorrow, she's going to have confidence, she's going to have certainty, she can make this bold request of the king, a bold request that will come soon enough. That's Esther's subtlety. Now notice Haman's spite in the back half of the chapter. Our kids, two weeks ago, I told you, if you reenacted Esther as a melodrama, you know, one of those plays in which the audience gives this kind of interaction with various characters, whenever Haman shows up, you should boo or hiss, and you have an idea, again, as to why. You see verse 9, he leaves the feast in a festive mood. He went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But as soon as he seems to leave the place in happiness, it evaporates from the scene because he sees Mordecai at the king's gate. This man that he loathes, this Jewish leader that he hates, so much so that Haman is not content to just destroy Mordecai alone. He wants all of Mordecai's people as well. And look at what Mordecai doesn't do when Haman arrives. He neither rose nor trembled before him. So Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. It seems as though Mordecai doesn't even give any sort of nod as to Haman's presence. He doesn't even stare. He doesn't even watch, emotionless. The text, of course, says he doesn't even tremble. He doesn't give any awareness that he knows he's in Haman's presence. He certainly is not bowing as everyone is supposed to bow before Haman. He's just keeping calm. He's carrying on. He's minding his own business. And Haman hates him ever more for it. But he, as so often happens, he can keep his emotions in check, can keep his hatred to some degree under a governor. You see, in verse 10, he calls together his friends, his wife, his loved ones, his close ones. And then verse 11, he begins to recount, essentially, how wonderful Haman is. I've heard someone say this would have been an ancient equivalent of a social media profile. Look at everything that I am doing. Look at everything that I have done. Look at how many people are in my family. Look at how wonderful I am. And incidentally enough, it's, it's something that you need to always recognize how people, when they're self-absorbed and tend towards self-flattery, that self-absorption and self-flattery almost always leads to self-deception, which is going to be Haman's lot at the end. And also, incidentally, you ought to always be relatively wary of someone who immediately comes into your presence boasting of their influence such as the degree of their pride and the height of their arrogance. As the wise words of Proverbs say, pride goes before a fall, and Haman's fall is going to be great, both politically and literally by the end of this story. And so he explains, you see in verse 12, that I'm one of the most very important people in the empire. It's after all, only the king and I that got invited to this special banquet with the king. But it's not enough to do anything other than stoke his hatred for Mordecai. Look at verse 13. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. I can't be happy in life until I get rid of my enemies. All of this success, all of this power, all of this prominence, all of this prosperity, it's utterly meaningless as long as my opposition remains breathing, is what Haman says. 
So it seems like his loved ones, certainly on team Haman, they decide, well, we can do something about that, Haman, you know. Look at verse 14. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then joyfully go to the feast. Now, kids, I imagine that you don't know how high 50 cubits would have been at that time. If you're good with footnotes and you have a Bible with such, you might be able to discern it quite quickly. But what you need to know is, is they have encouraged Haman to erect this stake, is really what it is. A massive stake, 75 feet high in the air, from which they can hang Mordecai if the king allows. Not surprisingly, Haman loves the idea. So the text ends that it pleased Haman, and he had this giant gallows made. So the chapter ends with yet another cliffhanger, doesn't it? You have two different characters, each ready to make a request of the king. You have Esther ready to request the protection, safety, frankly, life of her people. And then you have Haman, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week. He's ready in just a few hours' time to ask for Mordecai's life to be placed upon that stake, to hang from that giant gallows. Esther's subtlety. Haman's spite. What then about God's sovereignty? I don't know if any of you grew up with a family that often asked you, what do you want to be when you get older? I grew up in one such family, and I went through a prolonged period of my adolescence saying, I want to be an astronaut. And so ever since then, I've always loved space movies. I've always loved reading about the space race that belonged to our nation's Cold War history. And I just happened to come of age during that time when a blockbuster movie of many sorts was released called Apollo 13. I'm sure many of you have heard of it, perhaps even seen it. And It was a story that's stuck with me throughout the years in a variety of different ways, but uh, one thing that the movie mentions, that was true in the real-life story as well, is how uh, Jim Lovell, one of these astronauts, was seated for an interview once, and he was recounting a time when, in his previous Navy pilot career, he was trying to get back during the time of flying over in the Pacific Ocean, he was trying to get back to the aircraft carrier where all of his instrument panel had just blacked out. No lights, no ability to discern exactly where he was, and understandably then he was despairing for his life, because how was he going to land safely? How was he going to get back home? And then he says that it just kind of clicked on him. He realized there was this trail of green below, this, this algae that gets turned up in the wake of this mighty aircraft carrier barreling down the Pacific Ocean, and he used that light to bring him all the way back home. And I tell you that because life under God's sovereignty often feels like that. You're just kind of going through the darkness, not knowing what God is doing. Sure, you have certain instruments in front of you, God's Word and God's Spirit to guide you along the way, but many times you don't know exactly why God has put you here, why He hasn't put you there, why He's done this and not done that, why He's answered your prayer in this way and and not this way. And sometimes you're looking for a way in which you might be helped to make it all the way home. And Esther's a story that helps us understand what it means to trust God even in the midst of what can be His dark sovereignty. And by dark, I mean unknown, mysterious providence in our lives. 
And what chapter 5 is helping us understand is ordinary ways in which we respond to what is an often mystifying providence and perhaps even confusing sovereignty. Because as we begin to close, I want you to notice how this chapter is calling us to two responses, certainly at least, as God's sovereignty is moving in our midst. First, God's sovereignty calls for prayer, for prayer. If you glance back to the end of of chapter 4, Mordecai's come to Esther. You need to intercede for us. And you'll see what she says there in verse 16. She's going to fast for three days. And her young women will fast with her. And then she's going to go to the king. Now, if you know this story well, she spent over a year preparing herself physically to first meet with the king. Now, for three days, she's going to prepare herself spiritually to meet with the king yet again. And when she's arriving into the king's presence, she's arriving to make a petition, isn't she? You might say that Esther is arriving into the king's presence to offer a prayer for her people. And how different it is entering the kingdoms of this world with our petitions and requests, not knowing if they're going to be received, not knowing if they're going to be welcomed, not knowing if there's something that may cause us to run in fear and fright, compared to coming into the sovereign king's presence Our Heavenly Father above, knowing that He'll never turn us away. He always delights to receive the petitions and the prayers and the requests of His people. Sometimes what can happen in the midst of a circumstance or situation of God's mysterious providence, you might find a Christian that will say, well, all I can do is is pray. And I hope you know that that's a lot that you can do. It's not a minimal thing that God has given you to pray when you don't know how He is working, when how He is leading. He's inviting you. When you don't know to press in in kindness and humility and earnestness and fervency to know that He's got everything under control and will answer according to His own timing and His own purpose, which leads to the second point, of course. God's sovereignty calls not just for prayer, but also for patience. For patience. If you're kind of swept up within the story, you might have frustration about Esther's subtle scheme bursting. Why don't you just ask the king now? Save my people, O king. But God's purposes, aren't they? So often working themselves out much slower than we would ever want them to. Where we want hours to pass and then the prayer is answered. He says, no, it won't even be weeks or months. It'll be years that pass, and then I'll eventually answer that prayer. When mysterious providence comes, it calls us to pray. It calls us to be patient, knowing that he will answer in his own time, that he will work all things together according to the good of his people, precisely when he has decreed for it to happen. Pointing us, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as the Bible says, it was only in the fullness of time that Jesus Christ arrived. No doubt thousands and thousands of years after God's people had been praying for the coming of the Messiah. Thousands and thousands of years after God's people had been hoping for the end of all suffering, for the removal of all sin. It's only then in God's mysterious providence that Jesus Christ arrives. It's of course the one to whom Esther is pointing in these scenes of her intercession. Because she's going at the risk of her life. Christ goes to give his life. 
She's going at the risk of a worldly king meeting out his wrath upon her. The Lord Jesus Christ is going before the heavenly king who will mete out his wrath upon his son. So God's mysterious providence reaches its climax in the Lord Jesus Christ, telling you still today that he is the yes and amen to all of God's sovereign promises and purposes. So you can continue to trust in him with your prayers, to trust in him with your patience, knowing when all seems dark, when all seems dim, the light has actually already arrived in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would encourage us in the midst of whatever your providential leading in our life is. Perhaps it's a time in which we are frustrated with your apparent silence. We're disappointed in the way in which you have answered our requests, not knowing exactly what you are doing. Lord, let us take heart and be encouraged even from the life of Esther, knowing that you are always working together. Every sorrow, every disappointment, every uncertainty for the good of your people, that your promises would come to pass in your perfect timing. And help us even this week as we go about serving you to wait on you with diligence and with joy. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we...